0: The Can He Do That podcast is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Then check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and The Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hello, and welcome to Can He Do That? A podcast about the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Mark Fisher, a senior editor here at the Washington Post, and your host for this episode. Tuesday night, President Trump delivered his first State of the Union address. Now, this is an address that is required by the Constitution. It wasn't necessarily required that he deliver it to Congress in person, but that has become the annual ritual addressing a joint session of Congress to talk about the president's vision for the country and to lay out his legislative agenda for the coming year. People think of the State of the Union as a speech about what the president's plans are for these coming 12 months, but it's actually more complicated than that and the perfect encapsulation of what we talk about on this podcast, the powers and limitations of the presidency. What the president is really doing in this occasion is laying out his priorities and trying to persuade Congress, because after all, the main power of any president is persuasion. He's trying to bring them on board to see if he can get these things through. As we've seen in the past year, this president has had an awfully tough time getting anything through Congress. Uh, the tax cut really was his one major achievement. And what we see Tuesday night was the State of the Union part of that ritual and part of Donald Trump's setting of the stage for the coming year. I'm joined today by a great political reporter, Eugene Scott, whose work you'll find on The Fix on WashingtonPost.com. And we'll talk about Trump's speech, what was expected, what was surprising, and what you should take away
2: from it. Thanks for having me. Now, last year, Trump gave an address to a joint session of Congress, not technically a State of the Union address, because you can't do that until you've been in the office for a year. But a lot of people commented on how well he stuck to the script and behaved in a way that people thought was very presidential and then very shortly after returned to his familiar divisive rhetoric. So this year, there was a lot of anticipation about which version of Trump we would see, and he really stuck to his script again. He did, and that script was much
1: more uh, familiar to Americans than perhaps his other speeches over the past year. It was what we've come to expect from a State of the Union. It was a laundry list of the things that he wants to accomplish in the coming year. And perhaps surprisingly for Donald Trump, it was not an attack on the opposition. It was not a chance to call out his critics. It was not a chance to bash the fake news. It was really a kind of standard State of the Union address. He uh, had his guests up in the gallery and he told their stories. Stories quite well. Uh, he delivered this address with a gentle tone and tempered language, uh, very much the special occasion Donald Trump, uh, the kind of guy we see when he's uh, has a foreign visitor uh, who he's presenting to the press corps, uh, or when he's uh, in a setting like he was in Davos, Switzerland, talking to the world's business leaders. This is not the Donald Trump of Twitter. This is not the Donald Trump of the rallies. This is not the Donald Trump of the very TV interviews that he does. This was uh, someone who has had a message that has changed over the course of this year from that campaign kind of slashing Donald Trump uh, to someone who is now realized that he needs cooperation from this Congress and so he wants to reach out in as much of a bipartisan fashion as he can muster
2: while remaining faithful to those who sent him to the White House. So I think it was a speech that appealed to his base, but not in the most alarming ways. I think one thing we get wrong often when we talk about Americans who jumped on the Trump train is thinking solely about the base. But the reality is most Americans um, who were Republican voted for Trump. Um, Most conservatives, most evangelicals, most traditionalists, and they bought into some of the messages that the base really loved, but a more tempered delivery of it and a more self-controlled presentation of it. Absolutely. Last week on the show, Karen Tumulty and
1: I previewed this speech. And one of the important things we said to look out for was how the audience would react, the audience in the House chamber with the president. That's members of both houses of Congress. That's uh, the diplomatic corps, the joint chiefs of staff, the Supreme Court, and so on. Uh, But particularly, we're looking at that kind of split-screen effect you get of the Uh, Republicans on the left side of your screen, the Democrats on the right side, uh, one side standing and cheering, the other side basically sitting on their hands. And we saw uh, that split perhaps more dramatically uh, in this address
2: than in most state of the unions. Indeed, and I think that's because despite Republican lawmakers uh, being moved and drawn to some of the comments that the president made that are pretty consistent with what they want out of his leadership, he also made comments that many Democrats— and the people who the Democrats represent find unappealing. Um, some of his appeal to his immigration policies, uh, the focus on the economy that doesn't seem to prioritize people outside of maybe the top half or even smaller um, percentage of Americans who uh, critics say will benefit most from this tax bill, and perhaps also not addressing many of the social issues that have dominated headlines recently, such as uh, Me Too and some of the discrimination related to uh, black immigrants uh, coming from countries in Africa and the Caribbean that uh, the president received such negative commentary uh, about.
1: Absolutely. And uh, this was really the president trying to be Mr. Unity, which may seem odd to some listeners, uh, given the way in which he has played a divisive role over the course of the last year and uh, seemed quite pleased to play a divisive role. Again, playing to the base, as you mentioned earlier. And the reaction we saw in the House chamber was really an unusual one. We saw members of the Congressional Black Caucus and Latino representatives sitting on their hands, stone-faced, especially when the president uh, crowed about uh, the achievement that he uh, claimed on behalf of uh, uh, black unemployment in the country being at what he uh, called an all-time low. Uh, That was clearly not the version of reality that the those in the House uh, who represented those communities uh, were willing to go along with. Okay, let's get into the speech itself. A lot of the issues Trump talked about we expected to see, but one of these was put into the speech really uh, toward the delivery time. It's something that uh, the White House held closely until right before speech time, and that
0: was that Trump signed an executive order to to keep open the detention facilities in Guantanamo Bay.
1: So when the president went out of his way to say that he's going to reverse what President Obama tried to do, which was to shut down Guantanamo Bay, and now we're, now we're going to keep it open, we're going to add more people there, take these enemy combatants and put them in there, was he doing this to be argumentative, to, to sort of – is this one of the occasions where he's just trying to do the opposite of what Barack Obama did or is there a different agenda
2: there? So I think uh, it can be both things. And one of them is this president has displayed a consistent desire to do whatever is opposite of what Obama did, because so many people who voted for him were so displeased with Obama's presidency that they would like to see as strong of a pivot as possible. Secondly, I think the president was being consistent with his desire to just be a strong man and and tough on terrorists and tough on crime. And so when he says that he has plans to expand um, these very controversial spaces that people on the left have criticized, I think he's resonating with the base that was very drawn to his message when he was on the campaign. I think it's worth noting that that line received significant criticism from people outside of uh, Trump's base, because the optics of it were... Republican lawmakers standing up and cheering torture um, and and people who were uh, suspects still for, for the most part. Um, and it wasn't something that was well received by those in the human rights community. And I think something that the president consistently has to be mindful of as much as he wants to keep people on the Trump train, you're always looking for new passengers.
1: And that's actually something that uh, you could argue he didn't do much of in the first year. Uh, And uh, as Karl Rove, uh, the uh, political uh, consultant to Republicans through many years, once said, the main job of a president is to add to that coalition, to just keep adding and adding. Uh, And that's something that Donald Trump almost was proudly uh, neglected doing
2: over the course of his first year. So maybe he's now feeling the pressure uh, to go ahead and do that. And I, and I was going to say, in fact, we have some polling saying that he's lost some support with some of his key bases, like evangelicals um, and white women. These are both groups that voted for him in high percentages that aren't approving of him as much right now. So it's really bleeding from inside. And so uh, we saw that the very first
1: story he told, the very first guest he pointed to in the gallery was indeed a white woman, uh, a Coast Guard uh, officer who uh, played a heroic role uh, in the Houston storm situation, uh, and we saw in the selection of the guests in the gallery from that Coast Guard officer through uh, some of the parents of uh, victims of crime and so on, very clear appeals to broaden the base, to reach out to African-Americans, to Hispanics, uh, to white women, as you say. Yeah. Well, let's move on to the issue that dominated Trump's speech, and that's immigration. He started the speech by using some unusually inclusive language for this president.
0: So to every citizen watching at home tonight, no matter where you've been or where you've come from, this is your time. If you work hard, if you believe in yourself, if you believe in America, then you can dream anything. You can be anything. And together, we can achieve absolutely anything. But he devoted
1: much of this speech to taking quite a hard line on immigration. In the guise of talking about a compromise, in the guise of trying to bring Democrats on board, he decided that he wanted to nonetheless assure his base. And so while he needs to make a bipartisan deal to move forward on this extremely divisive issue, in the speech he moved right from asking for more Border Patrol protection from gangs like MS-13 to talking about how he wanted to defend all Americans against illegal immigrants who commit crimes.
0: Tonight, I am calling on Congress to finally close the deadly loopholes that have allowed MS-13 and other criminal gangs to break into our country. We have proposed new legislation that will fix our immigration laws and support our ICE and Border Patrol agents. These are great people. These are great, great people. That works so United hard States is a in the compassionate nation danger. We are proud that we do more than any other country, anywhere in the world, to help the needy, the struggling and the underprivileged all over the world. But as President of the United States, my highest loyalty, my greatest compassion, my constant concern, is for America's children, America's struggling workers and America's forgotten communities. I want our youth to grow up to achieve great things. I want our poor to have their chance to rise. So, tonight, I am extending an open hand to work with members of both parties, Democrats and Republicans, to protect our citizens of every background, color, religion, and creed is to defend Americans, to protect their safety, their families, their communities, and their right to the American dream. Because Americans are dreamers, too.
1: Now, here's where the president laid out his four pillars for his immigration plan, a plan that we should note Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer declared dead on arrival. But nonetheless, it's a plan that talks about a path to citizenship for dreamers, although the only time he ever used the word dreamers, it was in reference not to the members of that group, but rather it was the president saying all Americans are dreamers, trying to broaden out from the needs of this one group that's so much at the center of this political controversy uh, and say that all Americans have dreams. Nonetheless, the president said, okay, we'll give you the dreamers, but in return, we need border security, including the wall, which he mentioned once, and then ending the visa lottery to move to a merit-based immigration system, and finally, limiting sponsorship to the nuclear family because that is not allowing people to bring their immediate relatives into to the country as citizens right away
0: these four pillars represent a down-the-middle compromise and one that will create a safe modern and lawful immigration system for over 30 years washington has tried and failed to solve this problem this congress can be the one that finally makes it happen most importantly these four pillars will produce legislation that fulfills my ironclad pledge to sign a bill that puts America first.
1: So, what the president's proposing here, is it the middle, down-the-road, middle-of-the-road compromise that he's talking about, or is this a a bit of sophistry? Is this the president being as hardline as ever uh, and nonetheless trying to make the Democrats the bad guys?
2: I certainly think he's uh, maintaining his hardline uh, immigration approach, in part because the proposal that the president presented after these most recent negotiations, the proposal specifically related to a desire for a path to citizenship for about 1.8 million immigrants, was actually poorly received by some Americans in his base. They thought that he was presenting an idea that was too soft on immigration, something a little closer to amnesty, which is what um, he campaigned against. And I think he was trying to reassure those people that he was going to remain tough on immigration, in part because his whole message about immigration has been that my tough stance keeps you safe and keeps you employed. The immigrants come and they cause danger and they take your jobs and we don't want that. That's been the bulk of the Trump message. Okay, Eugene, we're going to move now to uh, some
1: of what we thought would really be the dominant part of this State of the Union address. This is where I think a lot of people expected President Trump to spend the evening primarily doing a one big victory lap, talking about uh, all the great things that were going to come from the big tax cut, the bonuses people were going to get in their paychecks, all of that stuff, low unemployment rates, historic tax cuts, this one big victory. And he did talk about it, but maybe not quite as much as you might might have expected. Here's what he said.
0: Small business confidence is at an all-time high. The stock market has smashed one record after another, gaining $8 trillion and more in value in just this short period of time. The great news... The great news for Americans, 401k retirement, pension, and college savings accounts have gone through the roof. And just as I promised the American people from this podium 11 months ago, we enacted the biggest tax cuts and reforms in American history.
1: So I think. Fact checkers will have a field day in the coming hours (laughs) and days as they go through some of the claims that the president made. And of course, this is Donald Trump's rhetorical style to take, uh, even in this case, a good argument that he has, uh, because that was his one big success of the first year in office, uh, and just kind of give it that extra oomph and blow it up a bit. And as the president has said to us in interviews, he believes that when he does that kind of hyperbole, that that's what helps sell him as someone people want to be like. He he spent decades building this image of himself as uh, someone people would aspire to be like, and he thinks that that kind of exaggeration, uh, which he calls truthful hyperbole, he really believes that has built him into the character that Americans have come, at least some Americans have come to know and love. Eugene, what uh, what did he get right and wrong here, and what uh, is it going to help him at all to crow about
2: the tax cuts in the way that he did? Well, that hyperbole is also what has caused so many Americans to have so many problems with the president, because in his inability to communicate nuance, he comes off as being dishonest. So he likes to point to the low unemployment rates in the black community and the Hispanic communities, but he never addresses the fact that there's still a gap between how Uh, many black and brown people are unemployed compared to white people. And so he never communicates what he wants to do or has done to uh, decrease the gap between the races. And also, when talking about the economy more broadly, he fails to acknowledge that the economy has consistently been um, decreasing in the unemployment rate since about 2011. And he takes full credit for the decreasing in the unemployment rate, one that everyone is excited about and, as you mentioned, um, it's where he has perhaps had some of the most success, but he hasn't shown the most humility. And I think that hurts him with people who already aren't supporting him.
1: I don't think anyone's ever used the word Donald Trump and humility in the same <laughs> sentence before, but uh, it's always a first time. Yes. Uh, so— uh, it, The other topic that we expected him to do a victory lap about was, of course, ISIS, which uh, a year ago he promised to eradicate from the face of the earth. He made another big promise this time to, quote, extinguish ISIS from the face of the earth against similar language, uh, but... But the way he talked about ISIS this time was different in kind from what we've heard in the past. He never used the words radical Islamic terrorism. He really pulled away from some of the more divisive and inflammatory words that he's used in the past about ISIS. Here's what he did say.
0: Last year, I also pledged that we would work with our allies to extinguish ISIS from the face of the earth. One year later, I am proud to report that the Coalition to Defeat ISIS has liberated very close to 100% of the territory just recently held by these killers in Iraq and in Syria and in other locations as well.
1: Okay, so let's move on to another topic that Trump had made lofty promises about back on the campaign trail. He promised to spend on infrastructure in a big way to really repair America after years of neglect. And yet, in the first year, it hardly came up at all in Congress. Now we saw him bring it up again and ask for Congress to make it happen this
0: time. America is a nation of builders. We built the Empire State Building in just one year is a disgrace that it can now take 10 years just to get a minor permit approved for the building of a simple road.
1: So is there any reason to believe that movement on infrastructure is any more likely in the coming year than it was in the first year? Of course, a lot of uh, presidential historians will always tell us that a president's power and influence are greatest in that first year. And after that, it's tough to get anything big through.
2: I think the question is, will the president not get in his own way when it comes to collaborating with people on the other side of the aisle? We have Democrats who also say they want infrastructure. Their districts, be they urban or more rural, have projects that are in need of repair, um, and we saw the president highlight that. But it's when the president offends some of the core constituents outside of his base or larger group of supporters, that makes it difficult for people who represent these communities to actually work with him. He can be so off-putting, and his inability to negotiate in a way that benefits everyone can sometimes prevent him from accomplishing things he says he wants, like infrastructure.
1: Well, one area where presidents do have generally an easier time of bringing people together uh, and getting a kind of a bipartisan approach is on foreign policy. Uh, And usually at the State of the Union address, that's the part of the speech that they save for the end, in part because Americans are less interested in it than they are in things domestic, but also in part because that's when they know they're going to get applause from both sides of the aisle. And in this case, uh, the president's foreign focus was his rhetoric on North Korea. But this, again, was not typical. Trump language. This was not inflammatory, he wasn't talking about little Kim, he wasn't talking about uh, all the, the, the sort of derisive terms that he uses for the North Koreans. In contrast to what we've heard before, this was pretty docile.
0: But no regime has oppressed its own citizens more totally or brutally than the cruel dictatorship in North Korea. North Korea's reckless pursuit of nuclear missiles could very soon threaten our homeland. We are waging a campaign of maximum pressure to prevent that from ever happening. Past experience has taught us that complacency and concessions only invite aggression and provocation. I will not repeat the mistakes of past administrations that got us into this very dangerous position. We need only look at the depraved character of the North Korean regime to understand the nature of the nuclear threat it could pose to America and to our allies.
1: Now, I have to admit that before the speech, I thought that the president would take yet another victory lap on having brought the North and South Koreans together so that they would appear in the Olympics together. He'd take credit for that. He didn't go there. He instead uh, really just gave short shrift to uh, just how bad the North Koreans are. And instead, he took credit uh, for putting pressure on them. So instead of threatening to turn them into a sheet of glass or any of the sort of uh, warlike rhetoric we've heard from in the past, he basically basically sounded a lot like President Obama's approach to North Korea, saying we're going to put pressure on them, sanctions, that sort of thing.
2: Uh, Was this uh, an unusual Donald Trump when it comes to talking about North Korea? I think it was. I think it's fair also to say that when Donald Trump usually talks about North Korea, he's not relying on a teleprompter and he's usually tapping into something emotional and, dare I say, ego at times when he talks about him having a bigger butt than Kim. Um, and I think the people who helped prepare uh, this speech for him realized that you needed to be strong and aggressive but not um, offensive because North Korea and defeating North Korea or at least not letting North Korea defeat America and our allies, is definitely an issue where there's high bipartisan support for.
1: Well, what the president didn't talk about was well, a whole bunch of things. He didn't talk about Russia, uh, certainly not the Russia investigation, even though Congress has uh, approved sanctions and is hard at work on uh, various investigations to do with Russia and the possibility of collusion. He didn't talk about that whole investigation, the Mueller investigation. Uh, That didn't come up at all. Was it uh, reasonable to think that it would, or was it pretty clear that the president was going to try to kind of uh, skate above all that?
2: I don't know if he was skating above it, but I was confident that he was not going to address it for a few reasons. So some of his surrogates, uh, we had Kellyanne Conway on a Washington Post live panel and we saw Sarah Huckabee Sanders in a White House briefing say that this is something that they are convinced that the American people actually don't care about. And so it doesn't serve them well to address it. The reality, though, is that we have a Washington Post-ABC poll that says nearly 50 percent of Americans think that there was some collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia. So it is something that Americans are paying quite a bit of attention to, but it doesn't serve the president and his administration well to remind them of this thing that concerns them most. Secondly, with the FBI news and the chaos that's happening with that, there's it is still not yet clear what exactly happened regarding the resignation of Andrew McCabe. And so unless the president was going to communicate something very clearly, he could have put himself in a position where there were more questions than answers. And of course, there still remains questions about this memo and what it says and if it will be declassified and how it benefits Americans to figure out what happened in the FBI related to the investigation. I think the president knows the way that he can help his approval ratings not go any lower is to stay away from discussing the Russia investigation. It's interesting that people in
1: the White House must have thought about how other presidents who were facing scandals handled this in their State of the Union addresses. They decided not to go with the example of Richard Nixon, uh, who famously said uh, that uh, he told the Congress that we should not spend another year talking about Watergate, didn't quite work out that well for him, Uh, whereas Bill Clinton did avoid the issue of the Monica Lewinsky scandal and all that in his uh, State of the Union address that uh, followed that, that news. Uh, and uh, he he, uh, managed to get through. Uh, Although he was impeached, he was not convicted. So now what happens after the State of the Union address? Usually a president uh, starts uh, rallying his side and uh, luring the other side with some goodies to try to uh, build some consensus around some of his key issues. Uh, Do you expect to see Donald Trump's playing that role of kind of diving in to the Congress and uh, uh, knocking heads together to try to force a deal in the old uh, Lyndon Johnson style?
2: Our president has not shown himself to be the type of person when criticized who'll just put his head down and get to work. And the reality is people have already been criticizing the speech. And he's likely to pay significant attention to what his detractors say. And that will distract him from doing what I think the Paul Ryans and the Mitch McConnells want him to do to best serve the American people. Interestingly enough, that is something that many people who voted for Trump— enjoy. They like him. They like the fact that he punches back. But sometimes punching back keeps you from doing the work that these people say you need to be doing. So I think it's possible that the president could spend the next few days more consumed with the criticism he received for about his speech, opposed to working on the solutions that he proposed to the American people's problems.
1: So, the president uh, concluded that the state of our union is strong. Those are exactly the same words that uh, Presidents Obama, George W. Bush and Clinton used to describe the state of the union. I have to admit, I expected him to say the state of the union was great or getting greater or something like that. Uh, was, was strong. Uh, strong was in some ways an unusually weak word for Donald Trump to use. He's someone who usually comes up with something a little more uh, blazing in his,
2: in his rhetoric. I think what he wanted to communicate was that it wasn't weak. He does not like weak men, a weak America, weak ideas. And I think one thing that the president perhaps has to pay quite a bit of attention to is that while many Americans are quite optimistic about the economy, something the president points to as proof of his success, according to a Washington Post poll, not many Americans are comfortable and optimistic, should I say, about the actual country. People are pretty down and pretty uh, pessimistic when it comes to having confidence that this president can do some of the things that he says he can do better than other people. And so I think he will have to spend much of this second year trying to convince people that he can make America as great as he campaigned on it being. So there we have it, President Trump's very
1: first State of the Union address. Thanks to all of you for listening. You can find me on Twitter at
2: at- M. F. Fisher, M. F. F. I. S. H. E. R. And I'm Eugene underscore Scott. And if you like this podcast, please rate it and review an Apple podcast and share it with your friends and family. Thanks much.
1: like, can he do that? You should check out some of our other great podcasts, like Constitutional, a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. Or try Cape Up with Jonathan Capehart, where Jonathan brings you the voices you need to hear on the topics you try to avoid. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com
0: podcasts.
1: The Washington 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 Post.